Welcome to a special pandemic edition of Double Take, the Mellon podcast. I'm your co-host, Rafe Lewis, Mellon's Director of Investigative Investment Research. And I'm Jack Encarnacio, your other co-host and investigative researcher here at Mellon. Today, we take a hard look at how the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 is wreaking havoc with the healthcare economy, with a particular focus on the industry supply chain and innovation pipeline. To do that, we'll interview two experts, Mellon's own Matthew Jenkin and Peter Bolstorff, Executive Vice President at the Association of Supply Chain Management and the author of Supply Chain Excellence. Okay, first let's talk to Matt. He's a senior healthcare analyst and portfolio manager who's spent the last 20 years, or seasons as he likes to call it, being the big sports fan, investing in the sector that's responsible for roughly one in every five dollars in the U.S. economy. Uh, prior to investing, Matt was a senior research scientist at Smith Klein Beecham, where he helped to develop numerous cardiovascular and general surgical techniques. He designed surgical models for MRI and stroke research and researched osteoporosis. Matt earned a bachelor's uh, in biology from Tulane University in New Orleans and an MBA from NYU, both cities now at the epicenter of the pandemic here in the United States. Matt, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Matt, from what we can tell, um, hospitals are increasingly in full triage mode, either dealing with or preparing for treating COVID patients. So first off, how well prepared was the U.S. healthcare system for a pandemic in your view? Do they have the staff they need? Do they have the equipment they need? Uh, good question. Uh, I guess for starters, uh, a little bit more macro. Um, you know, I actually think that there's some good in that, you know, I'm always amazed how quickly we were able to get quarantined so quickly. It's never really happened in my lifetime, uh, neither of yours. And, you know, I thought that that generally uh, that transition of the public to quarantine actually was a lot smoother than I thought it would. On, on the healthcare system uh, side, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, definitely, uh, it certainly has been a challenge, and there's things to, to learn from in the future. Uh, the first thing is, is PPE or personal uh, protective equipment. These are the masks and gowns that, that, that healthcare workers wear. Um, I, I don't think that they ever envisioned, um, you know, how many different uh, – you know, wardrobe changes they would need to do as they go into room to room, how many times they would have to change their masks. And I also don't think that, that given this Internet age where you can order anything online, that the public would uh, hoard PPE before the hospitals were able to. So clearly, I think in the future, they definitely need to have a U.S. stockpile, if you would, uh, will, uh, much like to have for other things. Um, on the ventilator side, which I think has been widely publicized, um, I think they're certainly correct. Uh, by our count, there's about 100,000 ventilators um, circulating, um, and there's only about 60,000 ICU beds, licensed ICU beds in the United States. So that cushion is, is not very large, if you will, um, and to the extent that in certain regions the ICUs get overrun, um, clearly there's going to be a ventilator shortage. Now, there's obviously a call out to the to uh, private industry to start making ventilators quickly, but it remains to be seen how quickly um, they can um, they can be made. On the staff side, it's mixed. Uh, on the one hand, you've got staff members that are getting sick, that can't come to work, and that are dangerous to patients um, or, or their staff mates. Uh, so that's a net negative. Uh, on the positive side, given that you know, most hospital systems um, have, you know, either delayed or stopped uh, their elective procedures. 
Um, you know, there's quite a few anesthesiologists and there's quite a few doctors that aren't very busy right now that are now part of the front lines, uh, if you will. Um, and so that's certainly a positive. We've also heard lots of stories of uh, nurses coming out of retirement, which for a particular hospital system, that's quite good because, you know, that person who is coming out of retirement knows that hospital real well and knows the workings of it. So uh, we've heard that that's, that's gone well. So definitely a lot of challenges and a lot of things to learn from. Matt, one of the immediate side effects of this pandemic has been the near cessation of elective procedures in the United States. We've been running a proprietary survey of hospital executives, as you know, for the past couple of weeks here at Mellon, and it now appears that less than 25% of typical elective surgery volumes are actually taking place. So, Matt, what percentage of healthcare in the United States is elective? And, and what does it mean for public health and for the healthcare economy in general that all these procedures are being put off? It's a great question, and, and it's definitely been highly disruptive for a lot of companies that I follow, um, and many of them are, are elective procedure companies. Um, the best number that we've come up with uh, coming from the companies and industry sources is roughly 60% of all procedures that happen within the walls of a hospital or an, or an ambulatory surgery center are what we call deemed elective. But it's, it's important to split up elective into two buckets. One is uh, emergent elective, so you'd be surprised to know that actually implantation of a pacemaker or implantation of a long-term defibrillator or even implantation of a coronary stent is actually deemed elective. Most of these procedures are actually scheduled. The good news is, is they're deemed emergent. So clearly, if a patient is, is in an emergency situation and needs a stent, they're going to get it um, and don't think there's any problem with it. But there's a good number of those in the emergent elective bucket that are definitely being deferred. On the other side, there's what we call the non-emergent um, elective procedures. Um, these are you know, anything that has to do with the spine, knee replacements, hip replacements. Um, those certainly can be deferred, canceled, and put off uh, into the future. Oftentimes, patients have lasted quite a bit of time before they actually made the decision to go get that elective procedure. So they certainly can um, um, put that off. And, and obviously the, the trade-off is just a little bit more pain and maybe they're going to take more, uh, more ibuprofen. Um, so that's the state of that. And you're absolutely right. Depending on what part of the, the country uh, region you're in, uh, some places have stopped elective, either emergent or non-emergent altogether. So a hundred percent down. And in some places that maybe haven't been as hard hit, maybe they're down, you know, 50%, 40%, uh, to sort of have come out to your average of about uh, 25%. You know, the long-term implications, as, as you asked, is, is, is an interesting question. Um, I'm more the optimist, and I like to think that, you know, things that are delayed just a little bit maybe, um, you know, maybe won't pose too much uh, problem. Obviously, it's just more of an inconvenience. But I do think, you know, an elderly person that is normally supposed to visit their normal doctor whose office is closed because they're in one of these real high quarantine areas like Massachusetts, you know, that things like that could get missed and it, and it could end up being something a little bit more serious down the road. I think what we all hope is that while this is a necessary pause in, in these kinds of procedures and doctor visits, we just hope it doesn't last very long. So Matt, another of our survey's findings is that not a single hospital that responded to our surveys is allowing vendor salespeople on the hospital premises, you know, be it to hawk pharmaceuticals or devices or equipment, 
what is the likely impact of that? Uh, how much of the industry sales come from, you know, feet on the street, meeting face-to-face with hospital doctors and executives? Uh, good question. You'd be very surprised, even in this day and age, uh, face-to-face meetings and relation, real relationship building from human contact, if you will, uh, really does directly correlate uh, probably 100% or an R squared of one uh, to sales growth, uh, particularly if a company is in the midst of kind of a new exciting launch. Those touch points are extremely important. And you're right, salespeople uh, by and large are not allowed in any facility. They're not al- obviously not allowed in any dock office, much the same way that, that loved ones are not able to see uh, any of their sick family members uh, face-to-face. You know, the hospitals just don't need any bodies that they can't keep track of running through the hospitals. And frankly, they don't have the space or the time to deal with them. You know, the impact... Um, is is definitely uh, is definitely a negative. Um, I guess the good news for any particular company is that their competitors don't have the salespeople uh, in there as well. I would say where it hurts the most is on, um, as I mentioned before, on uh, new launches. So if a drug company has a new launch and they have this nice window where they're trying to get some traction and they just can't get any new patient starts because the patient new patients are just not going to the doctor to seek new therapies, um, I think that's probably where it hurts the most, where on the other side, when all this is over, they've lost a little bit of that competitive window uh, that they were counting on. And and I've got multiple companies that I look at and and invest in that are running into this uh, same problem. Um, We've heard the anecdotes. They're all doing virtual meetings uh, with their their doctors um, and, and nurse liaisons. But the reality is, is I, you know, while they say that those things are effective, I can't but help not think that they're terribly effective, given that I do think docs are busy trying to track uh, their own patients either on the phone to find out how they're doing or at least the ones that they're most worried about. And I just think the last thing they want to do is to take a call from a, from a drug rep, you know, talking about the latest data set that just came out. Um, so definitely a pause. Definitely a negative. Uh, many, many stocks within healthcare that are levered to that have corrected um, as much or if not more than, than the market. Um, so definitely feeling the effects of that. And hopefully, like I said, it won't last that long. <laughs> Your lips to God's ears, Matt. Um, you know, we have an entire country putting off regular medical checkups, you know, elective procedures, as you were saying. Hey, they're putting, they're, you know, we're all putting off dental cleanings, orthodonture, can't go to the gym. You know, at the same time, Millions of us are sheltering in place, maybe, you know, eating too much, not exercising. I swear I'm not speaking from personal uh, experience. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, what do you think are the longer term ramifications of this pandemic and all this sheltering on the health of the populace and actually for the companies you cover? For the health of the populace, I I guess I... I don't know. I think I think it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to make a call like that. Like I said, I, I just assume that we'll be, you know, in this situation for you know a few months. Um, but I just I I, st- I find it hard that that people's behavior, certainly with respect to healthcare, are going to have really long term changes. You know, if 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 a year from now you've got a problem that you want to get taken care of. The hospitals are all open. The dentists are open. I just don't think that this, this horrible episode is, is going to change, is going to change the thinking there. Um, on the company side, um, I do think that they're going to be some, a little bit more or better disaster, uh, prep work. 
I think companies are going to perhaps build uh, bigger inventories of products that, that could be on short lists in the event that this happens again. Um, and I think everybody's getting the good lesson in, in virtual connecting with uh, uh, colleagues, uh, employees, and and obviously in, in the case of sales reps, docs. But I, I just I don't think long term it's it's going to be that huge of an impact. This is kind of grim, but I guess what I'm getting at is here you've got a lot of people who potentially are going to have a negative, you know, uh, you know, series of uh, you know health outcomes potentially from being cooped up stressed out, maybe overeating, maybe not exercising. I mean, you know, are there sectors that can benefit from as grim as that sounds? I mean, is there is there a dividend to be paid, you know, to healthcare companies of a certain kind from, you know, the American public being cooped up? As grim as it is, and I, and I agree, uh, there's a mental aspect to it. Look, uh, the things that happen while we're quarantined, uh, um, obviously are going to be, you know, things that, that are uh, where a person might get ill uh, are going to have to be taken care of by the healthcare system. Um, and there'll be many healthcare companies uh, willing and waiting uh, uh, to take care of that issue. And mental, there's plenty of, uh, you know, mental health products uh, and services that can be used. Um, there's plenty of bariatric surgery uh, to be done in the, in the case that we get a little bit extra large. Um, but, Long-term winners, you know, if, I've thought about this is quite a bit. Um, I mean, I, I see, obviously, diagnostic companies, uh, I think, will benefit. I think they're learning quite quickly how to use the system to get things approved and pivot very quickly to get the right, uh, you know, RNA, um, RNA test or antibody test. Um, I think those companies will prosper. I also think the vaccine industry is getting a real lesson in learning how to get things done quite quickly. They had a, an opportunity uh, many years ago when the SARS and the MERS uh, uh, epidemics hit uh, uh, last decade. Um, you know, there was some, some green shoots on trying to get vaccines done, but for whatever reason, it kind of fell by the wayside. I think this episode is um, large enough where companies uh, won't forget and uh, clearly there'll be vaccines because everybody expects that this will uh, be a recurring seasonal virus. I think that's the consensus, and I do agree with that. Um, um, other longer-term, I think, longer-term winners, um, and this might go against the grain, uh, particularly for an industry that's just been battered politically and, and, and public-wise over the last many decades uh, due to drug pricing. I think the biopharma industry might get a bit of a halo or – somewhat of a medium-term preve, if you will, uh, reprieve from the government vis-a-vis -vis drug price, um, just because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, in addition to quarantining and all the things that all these uh, frontline workers are doing, you know, the drug industry is going to be a real part of the solution, and I think they're going to get recognized for it. Um, that's something I think will take time, but, you know, given how much pressure on the industry is, you know, to lower prices, which, frankly, they have, I do think uh, there'll be a bit of a, a, a halo effect. Um, you know, the losers, the long-term losers, I, I don't really see, you know, a, a ton of losers. Um, I think just the near-term losers, anybody who's got an elective procedure uh, as, as a main part of their revenue stream, I mean, has, is seeing right now uh, the worst nightmare in uh, revenue projections uh, that they've ever seen as a company. I mean, Organic growth rates could be down 
as much as 50% on companies that normally grow organically mid to high single digits. This is something they are certainly not used to. Um, and they have to right-size their P&L. Uh, they're going to have to adjust their sales, uh, excuse me, their expense um, expense uh, trajectories uh, in order to, to make sure that they have a, enough liquidity uh, to make it to the other side. I, by and large, most of them will. Um, but when you have no revenues, so there's no cash flow coming in and all the cash is going out, you got to make sure that you have uh, uh, bank account cash. You can't necessarily always count on the credit market. So I think those will be some long-term losers, but there'll be a lot of lessons learned from the elective side that, that in, in the future would be mitigated. When you think, Matt, as you touched on about recurrence, right, the idea that we might hear about COVID uh, on a depressingly regular clip in the years to come, I'd imagine that must be a very difficult thing to model because are you modeling for the level of quarantine and economic destruction that we've seen with our first brush here this year? Or do we expect things, you know, can you model solutions coming to market, coming to bear that might lessen the economic impact of how we deal with the next wave? Could you just get more into your thinking about that and how you even project if we can handle this in a different way next time or if we even will? I mean, ultimately, it boils down to vaccines. If we're talking about the same virus, vaccines are always the answer. Vaccines and humans that have been exposed to the virus that built up antibodies, it's essentially the same thing as a vaccine. Um, that's the answer to mitigate anything. And once you have a vaccine, um, then it just becomes the seasonal flu and, and the numbers are such that you're not going to overwhelm the hospital system and you're not going to um, necessarily um, you know, uh, make parts of hospital systems close for elective. So, I mean, ultimately, that's, that's the answer. Um, I mean, the other answer, if you just to, to go a few derivatives further, and this was written in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, was gene editing is such a, you know, could be such a wonderful tool um, to, you know, be ahead of vaccines. You know, if you're able to manipulate somebody's um, genome um, during a crisis like this, where they're able to develop immunity well before uh, the traditional vaccines are, are approved one year hence. Um, that could be a wonderful tool. I don't think that that's uh, going to happen tomorrow, but we have the technology today to do certain things to alter people's genomes, um, and that is certainly one of the many applications that will come out of it uh, over time. So I would look for that. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. Uh, a key focus for us, Matt, has been understanding how the pandemic has been, you know, it, it's been the ability or the inability of healthcare providers to access necessary equipment. We see this all the time, the, the sirens being sounded on this. Why did this happen, this, this sudden shortage? I mean, is it your sense that the United States is somehow unique in suffering this fate around equipment availability? Yes and no. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to know how every... Every country stockpiles things. Um, as I mentioned before, I think I think the PPE issue uh, is easy, could have been avoided. I mean, there's no reason why a company like 3M, you know, uh, can't have during good times, you know, longstanding contracts with the government just to make sure that our hospital systems, well in excess of the licensed beds, um, have enough PPE. I mean, to me, that that seems quite easy. Uh, on the ventilator front, uh, which I think is the other thing that, that, is, that is obviously very critical, um, 
you know, in certain pockets of the country, we don't have enough ventilators. And frankly, doctors are using one ventilator for two, three patients, even using nasal cannulas. Um, I do think that um, whoever makes ventilators today um, will certainly have lots of orders for stockpiling once this is all over, and they'll likely dedicate uh, a facility or two to just making ventilators to make sure the government has it. Now, obviously, that will be in their economic interest to do so because the government will pay for it. But ultimately, we just have 100,000 ventilators. There's no reason why we can't have 300,000 ventilators, which would be, you know, multiples of the 60,000 ICU beds that we have and should provide a, a real good enough cushion. And given the stimulus bills that are being paid for now and the trillions of dollars, you know, adding another 300,000 or so ventilators doesn't sound like a tall task. So... I do think that that will happen as soon as this is over. You know, speaking of the future, Matt, I mean, how do you think this pandemic has uh, impacted the innovation pipeline? And I'm talking about drug trials, uh, approvals for new medical devices, that sort of thing. Um, well, it remains to be seen how um, how handicapped the FDA will be on the current timelines of of drug approvals. So, for instance, if let's say in November. I put uh, my company put together an application for a drug approval. Um, it's, it remains to be seen whether or not the FDA has been delaying. So far, no. There have been on-time approvals um, and on-time communication from FDA as expected from companies. That could change, obviously. Um, but you mentioned a real good point on clinical trials, and that is definitely one of the um, uh, definitely one of the um, the things that we're, we're watching that that could be reasonably bad is. You know, companies are constantly running clinical trials. They want to start new ones. They want to uh, continue to enroll ones that are already enrolling. Um, and those are delayed. Uh, if you're quarantined, you're certainly not going to uh, join a new clinical trial, so it's impossible to recruit there. So all those have stopped. But also ongoing clinical trials, again, it's hard to recruit new patients. But also what about the patients that are in the midst of a clinical trial They've already been dosed the drug. Um, they're waiting to see the reaction, the safety, the efficacy. But all during the course of that time, you need blood draws, you need vital sign reads, you need um, behavioral logs, all the things that in a lot of ways do require some face-to-face -face, uh, contact and do require medical providers to be available. Um, and we sense that there's a lot of those that have been uh, disrupted. Um, as I mentioned before, if this lasts two, three months, I think we'll all uh, the clinical trial business will survive and, and prosper. Um, if it goes longer, I do think uh, plans will have to change and innovation will have to, um, you know, take a rain check, if you will. And one one last one for you. You know, we've been hearing a lot about telehealth uh, in the midst of all this. Needless to say, I mean, physical health, behavioral health. Lots of providers are now conducting visits of all kinds uh, over you know the web. Uh, and I guess what I wonder is, A, is that an adequate uh, substitute for the kind of care we used to get? Or maybe it's better. I don't want to prejudge. And the other thing I wonder is, is it possible that kind of primary care as we've known it for all these years uh, is about to change for good because of what's happened here? No question. Uh, telehealth has been an extremely uh, valuable tool uh, during this crisis. Um, before this, telehealth penetration was extremely low, even though 
about half of the health plans in the United States actually provide coverage for it and low copays. Um, but you're right, people are uncomfortable using a computer or a phone to tell their doctor uh, or show their doctor on a FaceTime visit, you know, what ails them. Um, and because of this crisis, you know, people's behavior uh, really had to rapidly change. And now it's become an extremely efficient tool, um, one that the penetration, which was probably in the low single digits, uh, probably will ramp up into the 20% range over time. And you're right, primary care is probably going to be um, the biggest user of that. Um, but you're right, it is a trade-off. Um, you know, do you really get the same care? Do you build the same relationship with your doc? Does the doc, you know, palpate the bump that you're complaining about? You're not really able to do that um, over the phone or over the computer. Um, but I do, uh, I guess I'm more of an optimist. I do assume that if a doc is concerned about a patient that doesn't really believe that the right diagnosis is being made, they're going to call in the future. They'll call that patient in. Um, but telehealth is here to stay. Telehealth is efficient. Telehealth can be scheduled easy. Doctors can do telehealth after hours. And uh, doctor, uh, excuse me, telehealth also costs less for payers, which in the end, which we would hope, might mean lower premium and out-of-pocket costs for the consumer. So uh, there are going to be drawbacks, as you pointed out, but I think net-net, long-term, it should be a big positive. And maybe we can ditch those robes with the open back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, no reason you can't wear those on a video conference as well, Rafe. <laughs> Don't prejudge, although I'm sure they're in short supply. So certainly uh, a lot of changes afoot, and many will be resilient through the other side of this crisis. We just hope the, uh, the positives are the ones that sustain and the daunting challenges are the ones that start to subside. Matt Jenkin, really a pleasure to have you here on Double Take. Thanks for sharing all of your insight. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Now let's dive deeper into the seemingly unprecedented impact on businesses being wrought by the insidious coronavirus known as COVID-19. The focus supply chain management, a once arcane and uninteresting corner of commerce that has now become an absolutely vital point for policymakers, for healthcare providers, and the general public. I mean, we're looking at hospitals seeking out ventilators, shoppers scrounging for toilet paper, investors are searching for clues as to which businesses can and cannot access key components, products, warehouses, and even their customers that they're seeking to supply. Joining us by Skype to enlighten us as to the dark magic of supply chain management in the time of pandemic is Peter Bolstorff, Executive Vice President at the Association of Supply Chain Management and the author of Supply Chain Excellence, now in its third edition. The Association of Supply Chain Management, or ASCM, is the global leader in supply chain organizational transformation, innovation, and leadership. As the largest nonprofit association for supply chain, ASCM connects companies around the world to the newest thought leadership on all aspects of supply chain and also acts as the primary certification and training body for supply chain professionals. Their members include most of the Fortune 1000. Peter, welcome. Thanks, guys. Really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and, and again, folks, just want to remind everyone that we are all uh, speaking from our uh, respective remote offices, so please uh, <laughs> forgive any sound issues. Uh, Peter, I think the first question on everyone's minds in the investment world is this. 
Were the world's preeminent supply chain professionals ready for a global pandemic? I mean, how do you prepare for this kind of cataclysm? So that's a that's a great question, and uh, and and I've been a supply chain geek, you know, most of my life, right? So uh, I, I I'm very excited about sharing some of the the art and science behind this with with your uh, with your listeners. So to start with, I want to introduce a very simple model on how we define supply chain. Uh, we own the uh, the supply chain operations reference model, and and that model. Uh, graphically is represented from supplier-supplier to customer-customer. And there are key processes, plan, source, make, deliver, return, and enable. And I think it's really important to, to have that kind of a context. So when we say something about supply chain, uh, we think about it end-to-end. -end. Um, the second dimension I want to share with, with your listeners is the idea that there is a scale of supply chain excellence from laggards on the left to leaders on the right. And we know from our benchmarks uh, over, over many, many years that leaders perform better to their customers they, and they perform better financially for their key stakeholders, including the investment community. Um, what we know about leaders uh, is in readiness for a global pandemic is that leaders have for the last five years, uh, again, based on other risk events in the world, They've been investing on integrating risk management into their planning processes. Um, and that's, that's helped them develop what we call risk mitigation playbooks. For those of you that are football fans, football, American football, um, if you've ever watched a quarterback kind of go to their wrist and they flip open that little, I'll call it risk playbook, uh, it's the same concept. As we see different dynamics uh, within the economic uh, landscape or risk events surface in the world, there is a playbook that leading companies can refer to uh, that will help them uh, optimize their network, change flow, uh, optimize their processes, change their processes, uh, and things like that. The last key point on and how do you prepare for something like this is to really focus on, on building out your, your risk metric. Um, within the SCORE model, uh, we have a whole performance uh, scheme of metrics, of which one of those is what we call value at risk. And so the, the definition of that, again, all of us uh, like definitions, is, is if you think about a risk event, it could be a pandemic, it could be a, uh, it could be a fire at a supplier, it could be a weather-related thing, it could be a tariff. Um, all of these things that we've experienced here in the last three to five years so if you think about the probability of a risk event occurrence, um, and then there's the monetized impact of the risk, uh, so revenue, cost, or, or assets. And so as uh, different leading companies have organized and categorized their risk events, uh, they put different probabilities against, uh, against those types of events. So from my point of view, um, leaders were prepared to manage through a risk event now, the probability of a pandemic happening right now, well, again, we can all, we can all guess that. So, uh, so let me stop at that. Um, that's what we know leaders are doing today. Now, since they've sort of never had occasion, particularly on this scale, to use these backup plans and risk event plans or put them into action, how would you say they are working so far? What are, what are you hearing from folks? Boy, uh, so as it relates just to the COVID uh, to the COVID-19, I'll call it preparedness and response. 
Um, one of the things that we know is, uh, is at the federal, at the state level, in the public-private collaborative, um, they've, been, they've been struggling trying to define uh, the supply chains that, that people have to think about. It's not just one supply chain. Um, and then there are various population groups that you have to think about and worry about. You've got the general population. Uh, you've got mild cases that have been diagnosed. You've got severe. You've got critical. So I think the most strategic thing uh, that we're seeing change right now in the public-private collaborative is, is how do we really define the supply chains that we're talking about so we can put some ownership and focus on those. We see the biggest ones are the critical care products uh, going to health, uh, to the health, the public health system, and uh, going to uh, what we're going to call the the severe and critical care. The second one is what we call the home health supply chain, really aimed at the general public who who may be infected but don't know it, um, and the mild, uh, the mildly, the mild cases that that have been diagnosed. And can you, maybe this is a good point at which we could expand a little and just talk about the ventilators since everyone yeah, is so sure. focused Perfect. on this, right? I mean, you've got the governor of New York saying he needs tens of thousands more. You've got the hospitals, generally speaking, in the United States alone, talking about needing many tens of thousands. And as we're looking at this, right, our country isn't the only one suffering from this problem. Every country on earth virtually is out there scrounging for uh, you know these uh, ventilators, which are made of a lot of different technological parts, and I'm right. wondering if you could give us some insight into that supply chain and and how that's going right now. Sure, great. Again, I'm going to go back to the picture. Um, I know this is a podcast, uh, you know, but but if you can imagine in your mind, uh, you know, a graphic where you've got uh, five segments. Uh, you've got the supplier, supplier on the left. You've got the supplier. Next to it, then you've got your organization, and let's call that the ventilator uh, supply chain or organization. Then you've got the customer, and then you've got the customer's customer. For right now, let's think about the customer's customer as those uh, diagnosed with uh, mild, or not mild, but uh, severe and critical care. And so, um, so, so if the you patient, think about and then the customer the is the hospital. The customer is the patient. Let's think about it from that point of view, not not the hospital. The hospital will be like the in between the ventilator and the, and the and the patient, let's put it that way. Oh, okay. So I was thinking, customers, customer is the patient. Customer is the hospital. Your hospital. organization is the ventilator maker. Exactly. It perfect. Oh, okay. You're getting a passing grade already. So nice job. <laughs> so uh, so if you think about it from that standpoint, um, and and so let's start at the right. I want to talk a little bit about that one because a lot of people talk about planning. So one of the things in this pandemic, in this public private collaborative, we have to understand what the demand signal is going to be. And again, let's just think about those folks that are in uh, severe and critical care, you know, as the WHO defines it, um, those that need hospitalization and, and or intensive care. We've got to understand how many requirements, you know, are going to happen as you think about this, the arm of this exponential curve. And, you know, and again, you know, depending on how well you've done in preparedness, there's a there's a doubling rate factor. So Singapore, for example, is probably the model country. You know, they double their cases, diagnosed cases, every 10 days. Um, right now, the U.S., like China, like many others, are doubling uh, their cases every two to three days. And so there's this idea of trying to, in a dynamic way, trying to understand what, how many patients would require 
uh, a, a ventilator, um, you know, because we know it, it saves it saves lives. And I think that has been very uh, very tricky. I think there's a lot of public sentiment around that one, but I think from a supply chain standpoint, how do we actually put you know some science around that set of requirements? I know in Minnesota, um, we actually have that number. Um, the governor had put together a supply chain task force, and we actually understand based on where we project the curve to go, um, you know, how many requirements and at, at you know, and it's time phased. At what point do I need those? So once I understand the number of patients that we need to think about, um, you know, and the time that we think we're going to need them, then you back it up into um, do we segment the, you know, where that treatment occurs? Um, again, you've got uh, countries like Spain who are thinking about opening up an entire football stadium to service some aspect of, of the diagnosed cases. Uh, so again, you have to understand from a hospital standpoint or from a clinic or from some other temporary health facility how, how that's going to work. Um, so how do, you, how do you integrate that plan? And then once you understand what the requirement is and, and the capacity to be able to service that, um, now you get back to the ventilator um, itself. And you've got software things and you've got hardware things. On the hardware piece alone, uh, I mean, you could Google this on the Internet. There, there's at least 80 items on that bill of materials that you have to source um, and then manufacture and then test and then qualify. And so even if you have, you know, if you start adding capacity into the middle of that chain where you've got all kinds of people who can manufacture the ventilator and, and test it and qualify it, you still have issues on can the supplier and or the supplier supplier um, you know, support all of that. I think electronic boards has been a discussion that you've seen of late, but I can assure you that of all 80 of those bill of materials, uh, you know, there's going to be more than just, you know, uh, um, one constraint. I think one of the things that we see is this is really driving what I call digital innovation. So you've got all kinds of people thinking about how do I 3D print, you know, constrained items, um, and again, you can see that in the news and in the media. Um, so it's not just a simple question, and that's just the ventilator, right? So um, if you think about critical care, you've got swabs, you know, so how do I actually test? Um, you know, if I got enough test kits, I don't have enough swabs, I'm still constrained at, at, at that particular part of the, uh, of the supply chain. Let that's me stop there. That's a great there. point. That's a great point. So, Go ahead, Jack. Sure, so Peter, 80 components at least, yep. into a ventilator is what you said. Yep, and that, and again, if you think about a ventilator and you can graphically think about it, you've got some kind of a, a digital display, um, you know, that is the interface, the user interface. You've got the main CPU unit where, you know, the gases are coming in. Um, you've got the, you know, you've got the, the gases going through a humidifier generally. They're going out to the patient, and then the patient exhales, and then it kind of goes back in through a filter and then, and then exits in the back on wheels that can be portable. Um, again, not a ventilator expert, but um, no, you know, yeah. generally, generally familiar. Incredible. So if there's 80 component pieces in the bill of materials, do you have a rough idea of how many of those 80 can be realized in one location, you know, sort of? Do you need to go to 80 different suppliers for 80 different parts, or is it perhaps hopefully simpler than that? Well, yeah. So again, uh, again, if, if every yeah, so every if you were to inside a company's four walls, they would have in a bill of materials kind of a description of the item, the supplier that that is servicing it, um, some kind of a quantity of it that's needed to put the thing together, 
you know, and then there's some other kind of a part number and a coding. You know, so within this, I could count them up, but I'm guessing I'm looking at probably 30 different suppliers needed to support those 80, again, wow. uh, without naming names. So, and that's just the hardware piece. That doesn't, that doesn't contemplate the software piece, the interface mm -hmm. that actually drives the, the hardware piece to it. So. And then let's let's broaden out the conversation again to just supply chain generally. Okay, now are we uh, a lot of us in the investment community have been wondering if recent trends like just-in-time inventory management, lean inventories, are these being rethought as uh, we see this recent chaos? I mean, how do you think the coronavirus pandemic will permanently alter how corporate supply chains are managed going forward? That's a great. Great question. So let me just share some insights based on our corporate leaders in our corporate community within our association space. So there, there's probably five points I'd like to make uh, on this one. The first point is we know that leaders right now are going to leverage lessons learned from this pandemic to make their supply chains more resilient and sustainable going forward. They're going to get the opportunity to redo some things. And I can tell you, um, Agility, you know, which is the ability to respond to unplanned demand, up or down, um, will continue to rise or maybe will accelerate in its rise as the top competitive advantage for any supply chain. I mean, lots of people would compete on cost. Uh, lots of people would compete on cycle time. You know, how long does it take me to get stuff there? Lots of people would compete on delivery reliability. I think this agility, the ability to respond to unplanned demand, um, especially around significant risk events is going to be a competitive advantage. Um, we also know that the leaders are doubling down on digital capabilities, uh, you know, 3D printing. Um, you know, so how do I start to think about, you know, my smart operations and digital development? How do I start to think about investments there? How do I start to think about synchronized capabilities needed to truly synchronize planning in dynamic demand management and all those other buzzwords that you might hear in the supply chain uh, trade sector? Um, so really doubling down on digital investments. I can see right now today in the, in the last six weeks, people who are on the edge of should I invest in this digital thing or not are saying, if I don't, I'm going to get left in the dust. Um, there's going to be a lot tighter weave of risk management and the sophistication of that risk management um, into the end-to-end -end supply chain. I can tell you one thing, nobody likes buying insurance, right? But why do you buy insurance? You know, and, and again, you've got all kinds of mathematicians out there saying, you know, probability of this and probability of that. Um, but the idea here is it's to help you manage through events like this. And so I think right now this, the coronavirus has really put an exclamation point on how do we really put a tighter weave of risk management into the end-to-end -end supply chain, as I described. The other one I know people are doing right now today is they're rebalancing their supply chain network. Um, you know, are we overly dependent on, you know, resources that, that China provides? And, and it wasn't just the, the, the coronavirus, but again, when you think about the China-U.S. trade war, um, other, other, some, you know, uh, I'll call it more minor but significant risk events in Asia around weather, um, et cetera, um, have caused people to really rethink about single-source, low-cost manufacturing. And so right now, those leaders already have in their blueprint, I have maybe a couple of sources for critical items. Maybe one's more expensive, but they're more agile because they're, you know, they're in North America. Um, 
And then the last thing, uh, the last lesson is um, we were absolutely caught flat-footed on the degree of collaboration needed in the public-private sectors related to public health supply chains. Um, and, and as I said, the two that I said is in the critical care products, you know, how do we plan, source, make, deliver, return, and enable critical care products to, to severe and, and critical cases? Um, and then this, the other one that I want to mention out, and I really want to double down on this one, is this whole idea around home health um, supply chain capabilities. So I want you to think about this. We don't know what the infection rate is in the general population, right? All we know is once somebody gets tested, are they, you know, are they positive or negative? You know, and so now people are starting to talk about infection rate of the general population. And all of these, you know, shelter in place and all of those kind of things are, are an attempt to, to manage, you know, this general population and prevent spread um, and prevent spread. But imagine all the capabilities that we have right now today. Um, it wasn't until just two days ago that I got a note from Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, again, our provider that said, hey, look, we have virtual, meet, our virtual appointments available. You know, we can do telemedications. Um, you know, we can deliver XYZ to your door, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. We, we did not prepare our home health supply chain to take care of the general population and mild cases, which is where the bulk of the volume is at this point. Um, okay. As you can see, I'm pretty excitable about this one. Sorry for the, <laughs> right? No, so, Peter, that's, Peter, that's fantastic. Can, I, can you just explain a little bit? Going back to your comments about how these supply chain managers are now seeing if they haven't embraced digital that they have to. And you gave one example, which I think is very tangible, which is a 3D printer. I think people can understand sure. that. But what does that category really entail digital? Because presumably they were already working with computers. They already had electronic correspondence. Presumably they were able to track their goods in some manner with, uh, you know, what you name it, RFID or barcode. So can you talk about what is it that they hadn't uh, embraced in the digital realm that they now have to? So, yes, great question. So let's think about the, the current supply chain, as I just described, kind of a, a linear plan source, make, deliver, return, and enable. Um, you kind of work from supplier, supplier to customer's customer. And, as, and, and we did a collaborative project with Deloitte, um, and we introduced a new model called the Digital Capabilities Model. And there are, are um, some key uh, digital capabilities that, that we know that leaders are investing in today. One of them would be synchronized planning. One of the tools that we know there is this whole idea around artificial intelligence. How can we use that to sense demand and respond to demand you know, easier, better, wider, you know, how do we leverage advanced analytics? So there's this whole AI cognitive computing. Um, there's the connected customer. Again, how do we sense demand? How do we know that a bed is available, for example? Um, there's the dynamic fulfillment. So how do we fulfill things, um, you know, in a more dynamic way as opposed to a weekly or, you know, a monthly schedule? Um, digital development, as I described to you. So dynamic fulfillment would be things like, uh, driverless vehicles. It would be GPS. Um, it would be real-time signaling on where your goods and services are. Digital development, again, the, the feature one there is the 3D pinching. Smart, uh, you know, smart ops, manufacturing, that's where you get the sensors. You know, how can a machine tell you that it's going to be broken three days from now so that you can fix it before it goes down? Um, 
and then there's the, uh, you know, the intelligent supply, you know, and that's how do I, in a dynamic way, understand, you know, commodity uh, capacity, location, and, and all of those kind of things. So we put some science around digital capabilities. Um, we put them in buckets. Um, excited, that's a whole different conversation. Um, but what we do know, but what we do know is supply, and this is for the investment community. We know, we know that there's two sets of metrics that would tell you whether a company is investing wisely or not, in my point of view. One is if their inventory turns are improving at the same time as the reduction in cost of goods or improvement in gross margin, one of those two. And the other pair is I'm growing my revenue and I'm improving my return uh, on invested capital or return on assets. And so we know that supply chain leading organizations are able to manage those two pairs of metrics over time. Um, and I would look for companies making wise digital investments now actually being able to grow faster, you know, with better margins and, and better use of better use of cash. Let me stop there. All right, Peter. Well, that's great stuff. And one of the unique aspects of the COVID-19 crisis is we've had massive disruptions to Main Street businesses and really the entire supply chain routes that they rely on. Ships being stranded offshore, borders shut. The U.S. experienced an unprecedented 45 percent year-on-year slump in imports from China during the first two weeks of March this year. The port in Shanghai, uh, one of the busiest in the world, saw a 20 percent year-over-year drop in container throughput. It is... Uh, a widespread change of dynamics here. So what, what of that? Um, what, what would you say about how companies are dealing with these new barriers? Great question. Um, so let me, let, me, let me unpack that for just a second. So let me talk about my main street, right? So I'm in Minnesota. I'm sure, and everybody could use their home state and their home municipality. I think our first area that we need to think hard about is small business. So it's one thing for a large company who's moving goods around the world um, in a retail fashion. You know, certainly this this uh, spike in demand up or down is going to impact them. But if if consumers are still going to the grocery store and they're still buying things within that context, then they're still going to to other larger stores and buying in that context. That supply chain will self-correct over time. I mean, they're they're that mature. My worry is about the small business, um, those folks that are truly down on your main street. Um, they've done an amazing job with innovation. Let's just take food service. You know, they have all kinds of consumer preferences that they need to deal with, GMO, non-GMO, organic, gluten-free, you know, you name it, and fresh. And so as, as, they've, as their supply chains have matured to handle that kind of consumer uh, you know, that consumer uh, uh, choice, uh, they've been inflicted by policy, right? You can't be open. They've had a policy change uh, that's impacting them, and it's not one spike for one week. It's not like toilet paper just went out and I have to replenish it. Uh, policy has dictated, at least in my state, that they can't reopen for an extended period of time. So my, my concern on, on the business front is this, what I'm going to call small business, um, you know, especially for food service, non-essential services. Um, the second thing that we need to be concerned about is what I'm going to call the other things that have had prolonged spikes, downward spikes in demand, hospitality and airlines. Again, I, I was driving by 
you know, a large hotel chain, and there were two cars in the in the parking lot. You know, something that you never would expect to see. And then you've got all of the events that are postponing or canceling or shifting to a virtual dimension. So, to me, it's small business, uh, food service, non-essential. Then it's hospitality and airline. And now let's get back to what I'm going to call the logistics uh, and transportation. You know, of goods between Asia, the U.S., the U.S. and Europe. Um, you know, again, I think right now within the COVID-19 response, you've got incubation periods that have to be adhered to. You've got shelter-in-place things that you're going to have to adhere to. Um, but as some of those regulations kind of ease up, um, those supply chains will self-correct um, um, because it's, it's supply-related. To me, it's the demand side that we have to pay attention to. I'll stop there. You know, Peter, um, back to the technology point for a moment, uh, you know, one of uh, the, you know, the pet hypotheses of a lot of investors, I think, is that there's going to be increasing adoption of automation across virtually every aspect of the economy. Uh, and, you know, when you look at a supply chain, there's a lot of people packing, uh, you know, putting things onto ships, taking them off of ships. It's it's a, still a fairly human intensive process. I guess what I wonder is, do you think that the supply chain gets significantly more automated because of what we've seen here and some of the, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The vulnerability to human sure. health and, you know, viruses and that kind of thing. So. Great question. You know, you can see who's hiring right now, though, that's, you know, still more people. But I, I, I believe over time, what we're going to see is, again, I go back down to people are doubling down on digital investments. Um, I see that there's going to be first, um, there's going to be more man and machine interaction, you know, within a within a particular supply chain space that could be in a retail store, could be in a warehouse. You know, it could be a planner interacting with an, with an artificial agent, artificial intelligent agent on a computer. So I know within our constituents, we are looking, before COVID-19, we were looking at how do we progress capabilities and skills within the supply chain community um, to be able to, you know, interact with, with technology, you know, and make things better and make things better that way. So we, we knew that to be true before COVID-19. Um, and we're very excited about that. Um, you know, again, lots of lots of opportunities there. I think with the automation within warehouses and with man, within manufacturing plants, I think um, to me the more important question there is, given COVID-19 and and our absolute flat-footedness around responding to capacity and volumes um, on some of the supply chains. I'm interested to seeing how many uh, reshoring opportunities happen where we bring manufacturing and, and distribution back to the U.S. Um, when those factories and warehouses go in, I assure you they're going to be using, you know, the the the, the necessary automation, you know, to be productive. But that's still not personless. Um, and I think last uh, last but not least, I think, and it actually should be first, is we also see the reskilling. Uh, you know of the of the folks in in uh, in supply chain, so food service, retail, um, logistics, and transportation. We see the opportunity to reskill because a lot of the supply chain skills are transferable across industry. Um, and so, uh, so again, we're very bullish on that. So when I'll it comes stop there. To, when it comes to China, Peter, you know, 
this pandemic comes to us as supply chain managers are already dealing with massive disruptions from the trade war and the new tariffs those introduced. And we're wondering where are we in the realignment of supply chains out of China right now? You know, where were we? Does this accelerate it? Are you seeing, you know, instances where folks are indeed taking those concrete steps, shifting manufacturing away from China? Will those moves, if we are seeing them, be permanent? Anything in U.S., North America you're seeing in that vein? Yeah, so let me go back a few years. So, so again, when the China economy was just going gangbusters, what was happening is all of the capacity that we had invested in China to service, you know, export to the world actually got filled up with domestic, Chinese domestic pro, uh, demand. And so there was a point in time at that point where companies in a very proactive way started to think about, okay, where do I put my next bit of capacity? And there were some decisions back then do I bring it back into the, you know, back into North America someplace? Uh, you know, do I go to Southeast Asia? You know, where do I East, Eastern Europe? So there was a, a, a migration at that point when the capacity that was in China was for China. Then, then enter in some of the other risk events that happened in Japan, um, in the weather issues. Um, Hong Kong political system has been interesting. Um, the, uh, you know, the trade war. I think what's happened is for leaders, it's just what I would call um, every prior risk event further informs and updates their playbook to enable more rapid response in the future. So leaders gain share. It's the laggards that are going to be problematic. If you didn't think about it before and you're using COVID as the first time you're going to look at capacity, mm -hmm. um, they're, they're going to have some challenges. Does that make sense? It sure does. And are we seeing concrete steps to you know, put manufacturing away from China that you expect to be permanent? I think it's rebalancing. Yeah, nothing's ever permanent. So I think there's going to be a natural rebalancing of capacity. Absolutely. Again, when you look at the sheer volume of workforce in China and the investments they've made in infrastructure, it's still a good place to do business. The question is, from a risk standpoint, is it the only place that you're going to be doing business? I guess that's the, that's the big question. And again, I think Every, you know, every, every supply chain is going to be reevaluating and thinking about rebalancing their network uh, for sure, if they haven't already. Again, we know leaders have. Peter, last question for you. Um, you know, it's something I think folks were thinking about before the pandemic, and it's probably fallen off the radar a little bit, but still probably important in the longer term, which is that we you know, we created a NAFTA 2.0 here, the USMCA, uh, which changed the relationship uh, between the U.S., uh, Mexico in particular, but also Canada. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what we've seen to date in terms of how that's, you know, affecting supply chains and supply chain management. Yeah, good. So not, I'm not an expert there, but I, but I can tell you uh, a couple of things. One is, you know, if, if we were to do it, the, the good news is that we actually have something on paper, right? So there was this whole period of time where it was, you know, kind of through the media that we were talking about it. So, you know, so at least we have something on paper. Um, I, it's too early to tell, um, you know, from, a, from a, my vantage point and my view of the supply chain, especially with our corporate members. I do know that by industry, you know, the dairy, you know, made out. Uh, you know, on both sides, uh, metals did not uh, make out. There's still uh, tariffs employed. And then the projection is that, you know, automobiles, 
um, again, came out, you know, from a, from a trade standpoint, the worst. So what I would suggest is uh, uh, there's nothing that's showing up on my dashboard that says, you know, NAFTA 2.0 is causing huge pains. Um, I think you'd have to go into an industry vertical in one of those three and really, and really get at, you know, what are they seeing right now from boots on the ground standpoint. Well, it's an excellent conversation, and it's a great way to set the table on reading what's ahead. Changes that are permanent, changes that might just be in response to this pandemic we're dealing with, uh, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, Peter Bolstorff from the Association of Supply Chain Management. It was a privilege to have you on Double Take, and best of luck to you. Cheers, guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Mellon Investments Corporation is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Mellon, which are subject to change and which Mellon does not undertake to update. This podcast or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This recording may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this recording is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable but the information has not been independently verified by Mellon. Mellon makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with Mellon, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Please see Mellon.com for important index licensing information. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst are registered trademarks owned by CFA Institute. For more market perspectives and insight from our teams, please visit www.mellon.com.